Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. International News Review. Welcome back to our International News Review. Steve Oaken joining us from sunny Southern California. Steve, welcome. Great to have you with us today, Steve. A lot to talk about. Let's start with the former president. Uh, Now um, the uh, Department of Justice is coming out saying that some of the documents taken uh, could have been nuclear in in their content, etc. All kinds of things happening. Get us up to speed on what the latest is. Well, look, I mean, when I was in government and I had my security clearance, you, you knew what you had to do with, with classified documents. You were extraordinarily careful with them. There were strict protocols with them. You never in a million years thought, oh, I'll just take this home and I'll put it in my basement and keep it there. Right. And, and that's apparently what Donald Trump did. I mean, Donald Trump, uh, according uh, to all the reports, is that he took not only top secret documents, and, and that's you know the second highest classification of, of materials, he took sensitive compartmented information labeled documents. These are documents that it, it, it in, include source material, methods, analytical info that would be of extreme harm to the United States if it was released. He had boxes and boxes of these documents. The Justice Department knew he had them. They tried to get it back. They couldn't get it back. That's why they went to the extraordinary step for the first time in history of, of raiding a former president's home to get these highly classified documents because who knows what's in there, but it could very well be nuclear secrets that are in there, either of the United States or of allies or of adversaries. Steve, you were in the uh, Clinton government. Give us the legal context for Singaporeans. One, is there any way on this earth he wouldn't have known the legal ramifications? And two, what are the potential legal ramifications? If, if, if you had done something like this in the, in the Clinton administration, what would have been the legal consequences for you? And do they also apply to a former president? No, I'd be in jail, of course. And, 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 and you know, Neil, you would ask, you know, did, did I think Donald Trump was going to go to jail over, you know, the January 6th and the insurrection? And I said, you hey, know, that is a tough case to prove because you had to prove that Donald Trump had the intent to cause that insurrection. Here, he knew, he knew that he had records that the government wanted back. So there's two laws that he violated. There's the Presidential Records Act because those documents aren't his. Those documents are the people's documents. When you are in government, they are not your personal property. When I left government, as all government officials do, you turn over all your notes to to the, the department where you work or the White House. So they keep them and then they decide, do they, do they destroy them or do they hold on to them? A, pre, a former president, they're going to hold on to everything. So he knowingly violated the Presidential Records Act. There's no question about that. Now, he might make the argument that as president, he declassified all of this material. In fact, he said that he already. The White House, so yeah. it's no longer classified. Yeah, but it's still, it may not be declassified for him, but if you have top secret SCI in your basement that you're not properly taking care of, you're still violating the law. So he clearly violated one, potentially the second. The Justice Department had been trying to negotiate with him to get these back. The National Archives had been trying to negotiate with him to get these back. They felt that he was lying. There's somebody on the inside who made clear what was in there. And then the attorney general felt he had no choice but to raid the you know Mar-a-Lago to get these documents back. So he's in real 
legal jeopardy. Now, whether a former president can go to jail, that gets to be a political question, too. But legally, this one is 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 clear cut. So the um, a couple of things come up. First of all, the president has repeatedly said they had been cooperating. They took, I think, 12 boxes previously of material uh, from from Mar-a-Lago uh, a couple of months ago. Right. And so he claims that he has been forthcoming and 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 helpful uh, in that. And this has been a meme that's been, you know, traveling through Republican circles. So that is not true? That, well, certainly the Justice Department alleges that's not true. The Justice Department has been negotiating with him and the archives have been negotiating with him for months. And apparently there was someone on, on the inside in Mar-a-Lago who knew exactly where the documents were, who knew what the documents were, and who went to the Justice Department and said, and said here's everything. And the Justice Department and the prosecutors had reason to believe he was not being truthful, that the former president was not being truthful. And then that's when they decided to go to a, a magistrate and get the search warrant authorized. And they knew. I mean, look, this was no surprise mm. that this was going to be a huge political disruption. The, the FBI went in without, you know, wearing the FBI windbreakers. And, and, and you know, they tried to go in and keep this as low key as they could. Um, they didn't warn the Secret Service, who was at Mar-a-Lago ahead of time, because they didn't want anybody getting tipped off. They didn't want any media there. They knew the former president was in New Jersey, that he wouldn't be there to make a scene about it. So they knew this was a huge deal, but they went through with it anyway, because the United States national security is at risk. And, and that's what they got a magistrate to prove, that we have to go in and get these documents. That's the legal perspective, Steve. But the political perspective, what is the end game here? Would they Do they want jail time? Would the Democrats be happy to see this man in a court of law? Or is it potentially just to knock him out of the next presidential race? How does this work or not work for the Democrats? Well, they're really trying to make this non-political. And, and this was handled solely within the Justice Department. The White House was not told about this. Um, and so it's very difficult, of course, when you have a former president who's who's continuing to violate the law, who arguably violated the law as president, continues to violate it, not as president because he held on to these documents. And, and look, somebody's already died. You had one of President Trump's followers listened to the president's tweets, stormed an FBI office in Cincinnati and got into a shootout and was killed. So this has already led to the death of somebody. And you don't want to see that happen. And you certainly don't want to see it get any worse. So you really, to the extent you can, divorce politics from it. Now, you saw all the Republicans jump on as soon as the president, you know, made made this announcement. The former president made this announcement. <laughs> and, they pretty, well, and they did. And now all of a sudden, what happens when there's, oh, this is, they thought, oh, is this about January 6th? Is this about the fake electors? Is this about is intimidation in George? Is this about the New York broad case? And so that's all, you could argue that's all political. Nuclear secrets and, and, as, you know, and, and, and secrets of espionage are not political. And will the Republicans, not, not of course, you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, or, or, or Lauren Bo Boebert, but will Republicans like Senator Rick Scott from Florida no longer be coming out to defend the president if he was holding on to classified materials in the basement of Mar-a-Lago in a, you know, in a room that had like chicken wire and a padlock on it. Mm, um, mm. If it that's indefensible. Let's see if the Republicans are going to stay behind him on this one. Well. Yeah. Uh, interesting. And, and, and the, I believe the warrant is now going to be 
um, uh, made public. Is that correct? Is that the latest ruling from the judge in so that they can talk about what they perceive is there? Yeah, well, the, the, there's there's a couple of things. The warrant can is going to be a little bit, you know, vague, um, but the President Trump can release that anytime he wants. I mean, that's that's it's it. There, the underlying affidavit, which is what led to the warrant, which is going to then say who is it that told the Justice Department that these materials were there, where to look, what the materials that this person thought were in there. That that will probably have to be redacted because you want to protect. Um, the, the confidential source, yeah. because you know what you want the whistleblower, because you know what's going to happen. This person is going to get attacked, and they're literally. I mean, I hate it's not hyperbolic to say their life will be at risk yeah, if sure. this person's name comes out. Um, yeah. So I don't know how much we'll know, um, but certainly if you go to a court of law, you have to protect. And, and when there are espionage trials, and there are often espionage trials, you have to protect. Uh, you know, the, the documents, you have to protect that, that, you know, top secret information, but some things we will know, some things we'll probably and shouldn't ever know if it's, if it's the type of secrets that we're hearing are in there. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, temperatures expected to hit 36 degrees in Neil's home country this weekend. Yep. Um, yeah. All across, uh, especially the UK, but Europe as well. Heat waves, fires, um, water levels are dropping to uh, precious, uh, preciously low uh, navigation limits, etc. Uh, with, with this background, California Governor Gavin Newsom has unveiled a broad strategy for bolstering California's water supply to include recycling more, expanding reservoir storage, collecting data, um, etc. As as their uh, essential water supply is expected to shrink by 10% due to climate change. Uh, so since you're there, uh, tell, us, um, t- tell us why that's important. Obviously, the size of California's economy. Um, and, and is this a kind of a model for what other countries, nations, states are going to have to do? Well, look, you know, with the water shortage here in, in Governor Newsom's plan, you could look at it as a glass half full or as a glass half empty. Come on, Neil, that was not. I just caught it. Thought that was the the the, the, water, the, the There's a warning here that the supply of, of water is going to shrink by ten percent due to climate change in in California. You're already seeing uh, that that the reservoirs are at are at record low levels. You're seeing the fires, of course, uh, throughout the state, mostly in in the north, and and so. Drastic action has to get taken. This is, you know, on the right track, um, except a lot of it remains voluntary um, in terms of how much water is going to get reduced, especially in the urban areas. It doesn't say you can only water your lawn once per week or you've got to get rid of your lawn entirely and, you know, and go to, you know, desert or rocks, natural fauna, whatever it may be. So it doesn't have the mandates. It's still more voluntary than otherwise. And then it doesn't get to agriculture, which uses four times more water than the urban areas, Mm. because that is really economically and politically sensitive. Mm. So it's a start, but it's, it's, it's better than nothing, but it's, it's a long way to go before California or the rest of the United States or the rest of the world yeah. really addresses climate change. Well, the key word there, Steve, as you mentioned, is voluntary. And having just watched the documentary Woodstock 99, which I can <laughs> thoroughly recommend to everybody, I've given up on humanity doing the right thing voluntarily. <laughs> and to put it into context, last summer, Newsom called on Californians to 
voluntarily, reduce their water use by 15% by taking five-minute showers, avoiding baths, running the washing machine and dishwasher with full loads only, and limiting water use for cleaning outdoor areas. And guess what? Nobody did it. (laughs) For the most part, nobody did it. When you make these things voluntary, same in the UK, uh, hose pipe bans in the UK currently, please use less water. What does that even mean if it's not enforced, if it's not mandatory? Who follows it? So that's my question, Steve. How seriously can you expect these suggestions, these voluntary requests? I mean, are they really going to have any impact on this metaphorical meteor that is heading towards our planet? I, look, I mean, they're, they're th- again, if you look at the positive, they're, they're going to increase desalinization of, of brackish water. They're going to expand reservoir and groundwater capacity. Um, they're going to they're going to put in some energy efficiency standards for houses and businesses. So there are some things in here, but now it's going to have to get to be much more drastic. And and you know, and it's it's the same thing you're seeing businesses. All these businesses are announcing, oh yeah, we're going to be you know net zero carbon by 2050. But they don't say how they're going to get there. Um, you know, we're going to change our light bulbs. You know, and that's the easy side. No one really anywhere in the world is making the really tough decisions. Um, and that's going to have to come sooner rather than later, or else the decisions are going to get made for us. Can I just add mm. to that, Steve, for the context of Singapore, as I was reading, California, as you guys know, grows a third yeah. of the U.S.'s vegetables, two-thirds of the nation's fruits and nuts. This is no joke. You, you can potentially st- – one bad drought and you can starve the American population. How seriously are Californians and Americans generally taking this? Well, that's the thing, and that's where the agriculture piece gets so hard because if you do restrict agriculture in California, it's, it's got national and, and global implications because it is so important for the world, the, the, you know, the California's agriculture se- sector. And so how do, you, how do you make these decisions? It can't just be state by state. There's got to be some national uh, trade-offs that go on in the United States. There's got to be global trade-offs that go on. And now you have China refusing to talk to the, to talk to the United States about climate change mm. because Nancy Pelosi goes to Taiwan. It's a mess everywhere. Um, you have some people who are trying, but is it going to be enough? I mean, Neil, we, we need a whole lot more. Yeah. Steve, let's move on to our last topic today. Hong Kong back in uh, the news again. Record population fall has seen its sharpest annual drop in population uh, partially due to the COVID controls and also political uh, elements. Wow. Uh, they lost uh, 1.6% last year actually. of That's the total staggering. population. What does this say about the future of Hong Kong and, and how people are viewing life there? Well, you know, I was just having lunch uh, at, at, a, at a conference with, with a friend of mine who's lived in Hong Kong for, for, for decades, like 20 years, you know, financial services. He's moving to Singapore with his family. And I said, look, is, is Hong Kong becoming just another Chinese city like Shenzhen, like, like, you know, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Beijing, Shanghai? He said, no, Hong Kong's not becoming another Chinese city. Hong Kong's now a suburb of Shenzhen. Wow. That's all it is. Wow. Uh, he said, so everybody, he said, well, yes, you know, the exodus is happening everywhere. And he's coming to Singapore, as are so many people who are leaving Hong Kong, not just Westerners. It is, it is, it is you know, Chinese uh, as well, be it mainland or Hong Kongers who are coming to Singapore, going to other places. So this is a huge issue for Hong Kong. And I don't know 
if if they I, I don't think it can ever go back to the way it was because of what you've learned from COVID plus what you see out of the national security law. Well, I've seen this comment many times that China is almost prepared to write off Hong Kong politically and economically as if to make a statement. I mean, what is your take on that, Steve? Because they're not exactly doing a great deal to prop it up, as it were. Well, and that's why I think that, that people say, oh, well, when the, when the COVID restrictions get lifted in Hong Kong, and they still have hotel quarantines if you come in to Hong Kong. It's three days now as, as opposed to seven. But it shows that Hong Kong cannot make any major decisions for itself. The decisions in Hong Kong are going to be made in, in Beijing. And because the decisions are going to get made in Beijing, it is going to be a Chinese-centric decision, not a how yeah. do we advance, mm. you know, the Asia's world, world city, you know, as Hong Kong was, said and was. And so I think the lesson from COVID is that do you want to put all your eggs in one basket if you are a business? Chinese business, a, a you know, Western business, a, a Japanese business, whatever it is, are you going to want to have your your headquarters in Hong Kong? What happens if you get shut down again? And it's going to get shut down. That decision's not going to be made in Hong Kong. So, of course, people will keep a presence in Hong Kong. It will still be a very important city. And it, it might be a regional city. Yeah. It's not going to be the global city that it that it was. Yeah. Um, and that's going to that, that benefit's going to accrue um, to Singapore. Um, I just I don't know if you said there was a really interesting survey that Black Box um, uh, and I know you've had them on before uh, came out with the top five threats facing Singapore from from people living in Singapore. Number one, cost of living. Number two, inflation and price rises. Number three, aging population. Number four, uncertainty about 4G, you know, the fourth generation yeah. and, it, and its leadership capabilities. And number five is having to choose between the U.S. and China. So that's where, you know, the businesses are concerned being in Singapore, because when you're in Hong Kong, that, you don't have to choose. Hong Kong's not going to choose between the U.S. and China. Yeah. Hong Kong is China. And that's the difference. You know, Steve, back in 96, 97, uh, I was living in Hong Kong. We were covering the handover, of course. And, you know, a, a bunch of the boys would go out for, for beers at the captain's bar in the uh, Mandarin Oriental Hotel. And, you know, the discussion that all of us all... Could you be any more expat in that conversation? <laughs> I mean, you might as well wear a sign saying expat across your forehead. It, it was just what everybody did. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, they were wearing their Foster Grants when they <laughs> But the discussion there and all over Hong Kong was the Chinese will never mess up Hong Kong. It's worth too much. Too much money is generated here. Too many businesses are here. You know, everybody was quite confident that no matter what else happened, mm. the Chinese uh, government in Beijing would not sacrifice the financial and economic health and well-being and and ability to generate of Hong Kong. And it just it just seems now COVID notwithstanding, right? But it just seems that Aside from that, over the decades now, it has been anything but that. They've been totally willing to sacrifice that. Did I, am I getting that wrong? And, and when you look at the, the chambers, the, the American Chambers of Commerce uh, over Asia, which you are now chairman, you know, what's the feeling among the chamber members? Well, I would say look, what's changed is that China is so much bigger, has so much more economic heft, has mm. so much you know, more businesses doing it. So Hong Kong is less important because China – is so much more important. China is is so much further ahead than it was, you know, back when you were a kid running around Hong Kong. And so yeah. that's what the big, you know, the, the, the big change. And so it makes sense, right, from a, a, a Chinese uh, perspective and, and from a, a, you know, a, a Communist Party perspective of Hong Kong's 
you know, relative importance is much less now yeah. than it was. Hong China becoming resilient um, is is much more important. And if and and where the U.S. and the West has put sanctions on Hong Kong, the 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 you know Chinese government doesn't want to have that out there as a lever for the West. So you bring it all within China. Mm. So it's it's just completely changed. I, the city will never be, you yeah. know, what it was, you know, 20, yeah. 30 years ago. It'll still be an important city. It'll still be a, a, a great city to go to. There'll still be conferences there. But you're seeing all of that coming to Singapore now. You're seeing conference after conference after conference moving out of Hong Kong, mm. coming to Singapore. You're seeing the financial services, which was the strength of Hong Kong coming to Singapore. Um, and that brings all the challenges, of course, here to Singapore. Business, business prices, loves stability you know, the, yeah. uh, and predictability, right? Yeah. yeah. Steve, <laughs> thanks for your time today. Uh, enjoy your time with your, your, with your family there and hello to everybody. And we we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Off, off to dinner and a beer out, out on the marina. Sounds good. Enjoy. Take care. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.